the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Instructions on worship. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke, chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dis dishonest manager because he had acting, acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Luke 16. Uh, I once heard a preacher say that uh, the right way to think about Christian giving was not to think about it as giving at all, but to think of it as Christian investing. And I thought that was very helpful. Giving implies uh, sort of losing, detaching oneself from the thing that has been given. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, investing doesn't have that implication. Uh, I think that is the way uh, of Christian giving, the way of thinking about Christian giving that is suggested by Jesus' parable here in Luke 16. It is investing rather than giving away. There are debates about the details here, and some of my reading of this parable will be tentative, but the application, of course, is explicit, and so uh, it is clear, it's explicit, it's simple to comprehend, but of course, as ever with Jesus' parables, it is challenging uh, to, uh, to live out, to put into practice. Well, the parable opens with a dishonest steward being fired by his master for some kind of financial mismanagement, and he puts up no defense, so I think we're to assume that he is indeed guilty of what he's been charged of. And uh, the steward then conducts, in the privacy of his own mind, a kind of honest self-appraisal. He recognizes that he's too weak for manual labor and too proud uh, to beg. And then he has a eureka moment. I know what I'll do. He devises a plan, and the plan is to ensure that he has, if you like, friends in high places uh, when he's fired, and therefore, of course, that he's got employment prospects uh, after, he's, uh, after he's fired. So he calls in his master's debtors, and um, uh, the point, I think, is that the contracts, he probably would have overseen these contracts, um, and he lowers their debts, thus ensuring their good favor towards him in the future. Now, here's where we must be a little bit tentative, I think. Commentators point out that in verses, his actions in lowering the debts in verses 5 to 7 may actually not be dishonest. So they may be dishonest. He may be diddling the master. But they may not be dishonest. Uh, Debts were often inflated to incorporate interest. uh, And actually, that was forbidden in Old Testament law. So he could just be doing the right thing and removing the interest that had been added to these debts. That's another possibility. Uh, The second possibility is that he may have been removing his own usual commission um, and therefore, if you like, sacrificing his own money uh, rather than his master's. Now, here I am tentative, friends, but given how the story continues and plays out, actually that's the interpretation that I favor, that he's removing his own cut from, um, from from the debts. And therefore, Jesus is praising the man for shrewdly using the money that he stood to gain uh, for a much more significant long-term gain. It seems to me that fits best with the application that Jesus goes on to draw. I'm tentative on that. Either way, the conclusion is clear from verses uh, 8 and 9. He is commended for this shrewdness. The language of shrewdness is the language of of acting out of insight, acting out of foresight, acting now in a way that anticipates the future. The steward is commended for using present opportunities to prepare well for a future reality. Uh, Jesus could mean in verse 9 
Uh, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone you are welcomed into eternal dwellings. He could be saying, uh, be godly and generous with your money in the light of approaching eternity, knowing that God uh, will reward faithful discipleship. Or he could be saying, godly and, uh, if you, be godly and generous in your support of Christians and ministry, knowing that both they and the effects of your ministry, the converts of that ministry, will welcome you. Uh, when you uh, arrive in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, either way, the point is clear. Money does not last, and we should use it in a way that glorifies God and serves his purpose, for that is the, the coming kingdom of God is our future reality. And that is the lesson that verses 10 to 15 draw out, it seems to me. God is exhorting his followers to recognize that they are stewards only of all that they possess, and to use their possessions shrewdly, that is to say with foresight, in the service of God and in the light of eternal realities. Faithfulness to God in the affairs of life and generosity with material things now lead to great responsibility and reward in heaven, verse 10. So the call here is to be generous now with what we have now, our God-given resources now, in the light of a future reality. Be generous with money because such generosity is an investment in God's kingdom. And of course, that is a kingdom we have a share in. Money given in Christian ministry is not money lost, but money invested Invested in a growing kingdom that we all share. Invested in lives that we will experience when we meet them in eternity. Be generous with money because all our money is God-given anyway. And faithfulness to God with resources now leads to honor and responsibility with more in the age to come. Those who are trusted uh, and discharge that trust well will be entrusted with more, Jesus says. The point, of course, is not to be generous... uh, or at least let me put it like this. It is not that our generous use of money in God's service buys our way into God's good books. That, of course, would undercut everything that Jesus says and does about the manner in which we are saved. The point is that generosity with our God-given money now is a sign that we know it is not ultimate, that we know by grace we are heading for an eternity in God's kingdom. The steward used that money because he was certain he was going to be fired and was moving on to a new reality. So too, we use our money generously because we know by grace we are certain of a kingdom that is to come. So use our money for that kingdom. Use it in keeping with the future that we know is coming to us. That's the lesson I think we're to draw from the story. And thirdly, as the story draws to a close, be generous because such generosity is a sign to you It is a sign to the world, it is a sign to God, that it is God and not money that is your master. God is king, not uh, money or uh, mammon, um, more literally, which actually has a sense of uh, quite often money, but often broader than that, possessions in general. You cannot be generous to both. You cannot serve both God and mammon possessions, money. The exhortation here is not to serve money as our God, but to serve God with our money. Uh, We must choose, says Jesus, whom we ultimately serve, because ultimately you cannot serve both. 
And we will serve, of course, the one that we think brings life, particularly when push comes to shove. Where is our life found? What is it? Who is it that provides life? And if we believe that it is the Lord of life who provides life, then we must serve him. And one of the signs that we serve him is that we are generous with the money he provides for his kingdom. Those who are generous in giving are making that choice. They are showing by their actions who or what they look to to bring life, ultimately what it is that they are leaning in or leaning on and what their faith is actually in. Where your treasure is, there your heart is, Jesus said. And the question the parable poses for us as it closes is where is our treasure, where is our heart? Amen.